Chasing Quicksilver by Shannon Douglas. Copyright 2020. Chapter 10. The Lord of the Crossroads. We began this story, if you recall, at the crossroads of Main Street and Broadway, embarking on a vision quest after I met my friend George, a traditional Nishka carver, painter, and storyteller. It began in a way that felt supernatural and fateful, and the journey I traveled with George and my fellow warriors was an extraordinary one that took me into the orbits of cult leaders, culture makers, and wise elders. I was a suburban white boy, and my invocation put me onto a path for a period of my life which is called the Red Road. I walked this road as a white man, with a red man, a black man, and a yellow man. We were members of the four nations assembled from the four directions together at a crossroads in the process of remembering. This crossroads is a universal symbol for human beings, but none are so superficial and pedestrian as Main Street and Broadway. The crossroads outside a town was a place where many ancient cultures buried their criminals and suicide victims, or where they hung bandits from trees. In India, in the century after Alexander the Great, as the world was beginning to consolidate its tribes under higher and higher orders of governance and structure, the Emperor Ashoka placed stone stelae at the crossroads of his empire with the lists of laws of the empire for all to follow. The crossroads is symbolic of a place we all come to in life when we begin asking questions about meaning or when we're in transition from one place to another or when we've experienced a significant life event. We can even find ourselves at crossroads as communities and even as we're all discovering as a global civilization as we grapple with the cultural, economic and social impacts of a global pandemic. It's often understood that the crossroads in mythological terms is the place between the worlds. It's a place where there's a bridge between this world, the demon world or spirit world, and it even finds an expression in the stories of St. Peter and the Pearly Gates, where St. Peter is the figure who mediates the path of souls between the worlds at the end of our lives. The crossroads is a metaphor for a place in life where we face decisions and choices and where we may find ourselves calling our beliefs values and actions into question. It's a place where life is destabilized and where we're suddenly faced with uncertainty about which direction to take or how to respond. There may be several clear choices in front of us or there may be ambiguous ones and while we're facing those choices we're in limbo or perhaps we're in a maze without a map. Within the old American Delta Blues legends, there's a story of a musician named Robert Johnson who's said to have made a pact with the devil at the crossroads. He traded his soul for musical talents and an immortal place in music history. But as all legends like this tell us, the devil deceives Johnson, and he dies young at the age of 27. This, by the way, contributed to another popular urban legend about a curse afflicting young musicians, who all died at the age of 27. Jimi Hendrix, Janis Joplin, Amy Winehouse, Kurt Cobain, Jim Morrison, and many others. The Devil at the Crossroads is an old legend that's connected to a larger and longer pattern of mythology from around the world. It's been interpreted in children's cartoons, songs, stories, and tales of suspense and horror, and we see elements of this trickster archetype in legends and fables of the foolish wishes, where someone seeking to have their wishes granted is deceived by a mysterious crossroads figure. A variation is also found in the reverse image of the story, the story of the fairy godmother, an ally in the evolution or growth of the character in the myth. 
Joseph Campbell describes this figure as the herald who calls the hero to adventure. This herald or trickster figure appears at the junction between the normal world and the world of magnified power. It invites us or tricks us into following it. The trickster appears in folk tales and urban legends as a devil, an old man, a hare, a coyote, a frog, and in many other forms. In the story of Jesus and in the story of the Buddha, each of the two figures faced temptation and trickery after a long period of fasting. Jesus was tempted by the devil with wealth and worldly power, and the Buddha was tempted by the three devas, representing the vices of material existence. In the case of these two figures both transcend the temptation, but in myths all over the world, the trickster tempts heroes and heroines with bargains and boons that bring the adventurer into the world of the soul, where they'll be transformed along their journey. This herald, in spite of being a trickster, is an ally in the world of magnified power. It often confers knowledge or talismans upon the hero of the journey, and it directs their attention along the quest to the next stages. In the story of Alice in Wonderland, this figure is the White Rabbit. In the roots of the old blues legends in Haitian and Creole voodoo, he's an aging black man dressed in rags wearing a wide-brimmed straw hat. His name is Papa Legba. He walks with a cane, carries a pipe, and he grants wishes at the crossroads. Papa Legba is a liminal or threshold spirit like the White Rabbit. He moves between this world and the next. The word liminal is the root of the word subliminal, meaning he's a keeper of the boundary between the conscious mind and the domain of the unconscious, the domain of symbols and archetypes and gods. The legends of him suggest that he appreciates a gift of burned tobacco, black coffee, and rum. He's the lord of the crossroads. When I met George in the arthrology all those years ago and began my journey into this realm of magnified power, I learned from him that spirit guides are real. He offered tobacco and opened the door to the spirit world and taught me about the framework or the map of the psyche that he and his traditional brothers and sisters understand. That afternoon he taught me about the medicine wheel, a four-quadrant representation of the four directions and the four seasons depicted as a circle divided into four, a crossroads. Its colors are black, red, white, and yellow, like the four nations of the earth. You have spirit guides too, he told me. You've just forgotten. A spirit guide, as I've come to remember, is a liminal spirit. We can see references to it in cultures around the world and all through time. It represents what we've come to understand in the age of science and reason as a set of cognitive functions that mediates between the unconscious mind and our awake and aware self. At its most basic functional level, it scans our environment for stimulus relevant to the basic drives of life. Will it kill me? Can I eat it? Can I fuck it? At its most sophisticated levels, it scans our sensory fields for salience, for things that are relevant to us. This is the part of us that points out meaningful coincidence to us and drives us towards and points out to us the kinds of seemingly incredible synchronicities that Carl Jung observed in his work. In modern cognitive science, we call this the task switching or attentional switching or orienting mechanism within the brain. It seems to be a combined function of the limbic system, including the amygdalae, and the reticular formation system which acts like an air traffic controller for our conscious attention. 
as we've learned, our attention can be directed to externalities, to objects in our environments around us, like a twig snapping in the forest near us, or to the sound of our name being mentioned at a cocktail party 20 feet away. It can also be directed to internal objects like memories and creative ideas that have salience for us in some capacity. What that means is that our attention is mediated between the material world and the psychic world by these parts of our brains. And we've known about it and told stories about it for as long as 6,000 years. It may be as fundamental and primal to us as the archetypes of mother and father, the most widely observable motifs in mythology and storytelling. The Egyptian god Tote was the inventor of language, writing, and symbol. He was also believed to be the scribe of the gods, being the master of the laws, both divine and human. He played a role in the soul's journey to the afterlife, recording the results of the weight of the soul against the weight of an ostrich feather, on scales held by Anubis, the god of the dead, the scales of justice. Tote was a figure who was the author of all branches of human knowledge. He's said to be the inventor of the calendar and to be the one responsible for astronomical mapping. The Temple of Tote was in the Egyptian city of Hermopolis, the Greek name of the city where his temple stood, meaning the city of Hermes. Hermes was the inventor of writing and symbol. He was the messenger of the gods and patron of the crossroads. He was also believed to be the soul's guide to the afterlife. He's associated with the Logos, which is the root of the word logic, and which refers to the divine word of creation. The Logos is a framework of reality coming into being. It is divine energy crossing the Lyman between the void of existence and the material world. The Logos is the source of an idea that presents itself upon the plane of the psyche before it existed. Hermes is the bringer of thoughts and language and ideas to the tableau of consciousness from the other worlds the unmanifest worlds, the world of mnemosyne and memory, the world of the muses and creativity, and from the world of the ancestors and the gods themselves. Imagine for a moment, imagine for a moment, a pink hot air balloon with white polka dots soaring overhead. Imagine, hot air balloon, it's pink. It's flying overhead with white polka dots. Prior to hearing that, where was the balloon? It didn't exist in your mind's eye until you heard that sentence, and then it crossed a lemon or a lemon from your imaginative mind into your conscious mind. Recall and remember for a moment the most interesting wedding or religious ritual you ever attended. Imagine, remember for a moment, the most interesting wedding or religious ritual you had ever attended. What was interesting about it? Who was there? What were you wearing? Who were you with? Put together an internal picture or an internal experience of that event. How did you feel? Consider now that before reading the last paragraph, the memory of that event was subliminal. It was there, stored somewhere in the structures of mnemosyne, but it wasn't part of your current awareness. All through Hellenistic Greece, there are stone statues erected to Hermes at the crossroads of the empire. They're called Hermae. These statues depict the head of the god Hermes upon a stone column with an erect penis carved on the column. My speculative interpretation of this is that perhaps this is because when we face significant choices and decisions, Hermes becomes aroused within us. 
Hermes, like Tote, is a trickster and a god of communication. He's a shapeshifter who sometimes appears as a cherubic child, sometimes as an androgynous youth, and sometimes as an old man with a wide-brimmed straw hat. He's also associated with healing and medicine, and his symbol, the caduceus, and its variants are found in biblical traditions and in Vedic traditions of the East and all over the world. The snake rising on a staff or a pair of snakes intertwined around a staff with wings. The Romans knew Hermes as Mercury, associated him with the liquid metal used in alchemy, also known as Quicksilver. It would be arrogant to assume that individual humans had a direct relationship with a god who's changed form so many times throughout history, but remained present in so many cultures like Tote or Hermes or Mercury did. These three, sometimes called thrice great Hermes, is a god of the collective unconscious. His maxim is as above, so below. In the world of the gods, we can see them in their full expression. We can see Jupiter, Zeus, as the personification of the explorer mode of being seeking out new opportunities and to learn new things and to have new experiences. Openness on the big five spectrum. The biological drive to expand, explore, grow, and change. In the world of men, in the world below, we can see these channels of energy flowing in very individual ways. We know from the studies in modern psychology that the big five model of personality holds that each of us expresses our nature on a spectrum relative to each of the five major archetypes of personality. Our individual degree of trait openness, which corresponds to the classical archetype of Zeus, Jupiter, exists on a spectrum, which is either very open to new experience on one end or very close to new experience on the other. Saturn, or Kronos, which is the archetype of order, corresponds to the spectrum of conscientiousness, and each individual has a level of conscientiousness somewhere on the spectrum. Mars corresponds to the trait of extroversion, which is more aptly seen as drive or aggression or proactivity. And Venus, Aphrodite, corresponds to trait agreeableness. Mercury, however, corresponds in different ways to these four. If Mercury corresponds to the spectrum of neuroticism, this describes the function of the attentional switching mechanism within the individual psyche. This means that an individual who expresses a high degree of trait neuroticism has trouble managing what they pay attention to in their material environment and in how they manage their internal psychic landscape of emotions, thoughts, triggers, and desires. When someone is highly neurotic, the trickster is running the show. In this model of trait neuroticism, the domain of Mercury would include things like emotional regulation, PTSD, ADHD, poor identity formation, and obsessive compulsive behaviors. This is the trickster and the shapeshifter at work. In each of us, in its own way, moderating the limit of consciousness, calling forth objects from the unconscious depths and from the major currents of higher orders of the psyche. At the moment, you're allowing me to guide you in directing your attention to new ideas, to things in your creative imagination and to objects in your mnemonic space, but you also have a part of you that's helping you, your own liminal spirit, which directs your attention to what it perceives as salient to you. In this case, exploring the structure of a memory and pointing out the limen between conscious awareness and unconsciousness is salient to you. 
and to your own spirit guide, because this will help you and your spirit guide have a better relationship. Our spirit guide has access to the memories of every conscious moment in our lives. It has access to creative spaces and energies within our psychic fields to help us create art and technology and to advance our sciences. It's familiar with the fatbergs and demons of our unconscious minds and connected to our better angels and the major currents of consciousness that flow through us. It also has access to our senses and our connection to the physical world and all the millions of bits of sensory data that our bodies experience every second. It processes all that information and triages it for us to point out to us that which it deems important. This spirit guide is the part of our psyches which filters information and directs our attention to that which is salient to us. In primitive terms, this brain function rooted in our limbic systems in the amygdala runs the basic program of consciousness to sense and respond to the environment. Can I eat it? Can I fuck it? Is it a threat to me? Its psychic field extends as far as our senses can perceive and it's constantly scanning our environment for things relevant to any of our three drives. This is how it directs your attention to a conversation 20 feet away at the cocktail party to the sound of someone saying your name. The Greeks called this part of ourselves the daemon, not demon. The word was corrupted by the religious mind as part of the suppression of the knowledge of self that we had collectively before the great forgetting. Some people, like new atheist Christopher Hitchens, describe this part of our psyche as our, as our conscience. But this is a simplification. This isn't a part of us that sits in judgment or whispers moral sentiments into our head as we deal with the things of life. The daemon is more like a personal guardian spirit. The Romans called this guardian your personal genius, or for women, their personal Juno, which they believed followed us from the time we were born to the time we died as a local and personal expression of the divine energy. The Romans believed, as the people of Turtle Island believe, that these spirit guides took on an individual expression that reflected the personality and the life of every individual. A person with a deer for a spirit guide would have a different personality and a way of interacting in the world than a person whose guardian was an ox or an eagle or a lion. The Persians borrowed the Roman word genius to give us the familiar term genie or jinn. And we see in their stories the capacity of the individual to work with the trickster jinn as a personal spirit. In Tibet, this guardian is called the Dharmapala, and analogs to it are found in African tribal religions, Chinese god forms, and Hindu tradition, where Ganesh is seen as the mediator between the worlds. In one culture I read about, they represented this spirit as a loving child between the age of three and five years old. It has childlike logic system and takes everything it hears as a literal direction. It wants to please the part of our psyche we perceive to be the conscious self. So it's extremely important if we want to work with this liminal spirit that we treat it accordingly. What I mean by that is if we can imagine being a parent to a three or four or five year old child and we'd like this child to help us, we would treat it with the love of a parent. But most of the time, without even realizing it, we're treating this loving part of ourselves horribly. We do this when we run negative internal scripts about our circumstances and about our, our behavior. And it takes our wishes then and fulfills them literally. 
we would never imagine saying the kinds of horrible things that we say to ourselves internally to a loving four-year-old. I'm terrible at math. I suck at relationships. Why am I so stupid? I'm never going to meet someone. I shoulda. I shoulda. I coulda. How many of these little demons run around our unconscious minds, poisoning our psychic health, limiting beliefs, self-defeating games, traumas, and fatbergs? This part of our psyche gets its reputation as a shapeshifter and a trickster because it takes our directions literally. And with the wrong set of coding and programming, this part of ourselves can run dysfunction in our lives. The legends of the genie in the bottle and the countless stories found in folklore of the three wishes is connected to this psychic figure within us. The three wishes stories are always a lesson in ego and communication. Often the hero who finds the lamp and releases the genie learns the hard way by asking for something frivolous like, make me a sandwich. That the genie takes the hero quite literally and so we must be cautious when we start engaging this part of our psyche that we don't end up as white bread full of bologna. Joking aside, we can train this part of ourselves to work with us. The awaken aware self. The eye behind the eyes. We can build a relationship with it just like the legends and myths say, by rubbing the lamp the right way and by learning to connect to it and communicate with it about what is salient to us. Our personal genius, however, will take on whatever shape and behave in the same manner towards us as we do to it. It will affirm for you in the world around you the things that you tell it, and it will reflect your own treatment of yourself and of your negative self-talk back on you from the world around you. What you fear, it will help you create. Its goal is to protect you from perceived harm, and in its innocence it takes those limiting beliefs, traumas, shadows, and fears, and gives them back to you as manifestations in your own life. These things are consuming unconscious energy. They're the monsters in the maze, the unforgiven sins. If we're not disciplined and directed in our relationship with this spirit within ourselves, our external life will suffer unnecessarily. This is what a well-constructed goal or a properly said prayer can do for us. A prayer, properly said, connects you to this spirit, and it, your genie, will act upon your behalf. A properly said goal engages the parts of the brain in the limbic system that is programmed at an evolutionary level to help us explore new territory and skill and the reticular formation system will coordinate your attentional switching towards the things that you value. When we construct a goal or say a prayer in the correct manner, we engage this part of us to pay attention to salience within its domain of perception, which, as we've learned, means scanning hundreds of thousands of times more information and data from our material environment than we can with our conscious minds. It scans the material world around us and it scans the plane of our psyche, engaging memories and creative aspects of ourselves and the logos of the muses. And like an eager child excited about making us happy will give us the kinds of information and connections we've asked for. If the prayer is said properly, this happens as if by magic wish from a lamp. Sometimes this kind of manifestation appears to be in the form of synchronous events chance meetings and random happenstance, and sometimes it appears in the form of dreams or flashes of insight that pop into our conscious minds with answers to questions we've asked. All of these spirits, Hermes, Tote, Papa Legba, the hare, take us literally, and they want to answer our questions. They're all known as removers of obstacles and finder of lost objects. 
What can you tell me about a vision quest, I asked George all those years ago. But the real question is one I asked of my own soul. And my guide was listening. Spirit guides are real, he said. You've just forgotten. In retrospect and reflection, I had engaged my spirit guide years before I met George. It happened as I was rebelling against my religious upbringing, asking dumb questions about the nature of art and creativity and God. I made my wish by becoming fiercely curious and by engaging a part of myself that was excited to point out potential answers to my questions. I asked, accidentally, I suppose, like I accidentally asked George about a vision quest. My guide is a truth teller. Along with my curiosities, he drives me to ask another layer of questions. How do you know? According to who is this true? Perhaps this is a gift of perpetual culture shock that I acquired as I grew up moving from place to place, always at a crossroads. You have a spirit guide. It can take all kinds of forms. It could be an animal or a person or an ancestor or a symbol. It could be a fairy or an old man with a hat and a cane. You might already call it your intuition, your conscience, your guardian angel, or any number of other names. And if you ask it to, and if you pay attention, it may present its form to you. We've all forgotten this. We've forgotten it exists. We've forgotten how to access it. We've forgotten how to work with it and forgotten how to talk about it. For the last 2000 years, we've surrendered to an externalized version of the Logos, a religious genie or guardian spirit associated with the mind of the West, but dissociated from the psyche of the individual. He shared a simple, homogenized operating program laid out in the four Gospels. Jesus is remembered as the bringer of the Word, and as the Word made flesh. John said, in the beginning was the Word, which is Logos in Greek, and the Logos was with God, and the Logos was God. As if the Logos, which we were always connected to through our individual guides, could be separated from us and celebrated in all the memories of the West, a dissociated figure from our consciousness. The messenger, the bringer of language, the bringer of writing, the bringer of symbol. He is the mediator between mankind and the gods, and between each of us. You were made in the image of heaven.